The scientific revolution starts now. So listen, we uh, we invited you back. It's been a long time since we saw you, first of all. And I think that that, uh, in some sense, for a long time for us. So we've done almost 200 episodes now. Right, right, right. Long time for us. So uh, I think that, in some sense, plays into uh, the confusion here. So you somehow caught wind of our episode with Richard Lindzen. And well, Which yeah. I'd like to imagine that you've been listening to our podcast ever <laughs> since you were on. Yeah, hopefully you're just a dedicated <laughs> listener and you're listening to all of them. <laughs> but uh but yeah you you reached out to us and you thought that we had terribly misrepresented uh some of your ideas from previously and so we we, we don't want to do that first of all i, I really right. really don't want to do that so i i asked you to come back and you did and i really appreciate you coming back because i think that's the absolute best way to set anything straight uh, about these things so yeah, yeah. So, welcome so, back I mean, thank you and uh thank, let's, and, let's, and let's, thank you for let's clear this up yeah. Yeah, thank you for giving me a chance to uh, to to come back. You know, so um, I, I, unfortunately, I I don't have a huge amount of time to keep up with all of the most interesting podcasts uh, that that exist, and I'm, and I'm sure that yours is one of them. Um, uh, but this, the, the, I I noticed this because at some point last week, uh, I'm being um, showered with uh, with Twitter messages. Uh, claiming that uh, I admitted that uh, that the focus on carbon dioxide was uh, uh, was was just to maintain some kind of climate hysteria, and that you were being quoted as as, as stating that, and um, uh, and then I you know I, I I tracked down the source of that, and you didn't quite say that, but it was it was along those lines, um, and then there was a lot of like kind of the interaction that you had with uh, with, with Professor Linsen, um was a little bit odd uh, and and I am you know I I I get that you know when somebody's on you want to be nice to them and you want to go along with what they're saying but um but he started making some quite personal comments about me um that are not justified I, I mean I I don't really know him very well I mean I, I've met him many times but I don't really know him um and kind of like weirdly distorting things that uh that that not just I've claimed or, or that or that the rest of the the scientific community has said um it was a little bit odd and uh and I thought that uh what would be nice is you know if you do have questions about these things and it's not really just a question about my ideas like I'm not you know I'm not I'm not trying to pretend that I'm uh, a guru of 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 climate and that everybody should go with whatever my opinion is but uh, but if you have questions about why the mainstream of science thinks the way it does or what the evidence is for uh, why we think climate change is happening what we think the consequences are going to be i'm more than happy to 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 be a a kind of a funnel <laughs> uh, for those ideas uh, and you know and it was it was it was just a little bit odd, you know. I, I, I think you know, uh, uh, Anastasia, you, you kind of put in a plug for uh, for for me not being boring or and and having good ideas, which I thought was was nice. Um, but it's not really about me, you know. And 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 Richard Lindzen's um, kind of you know somewhat quite outdated uh, views of uh, of what the situation is, um, you know, kind of kind of stem from. 
you know, a long history of, of having engaged with these ideas uh, and, and, and had things not really work out uh, in his favor uh, in, terms of the, uh, in terms of the science. Um, and, I, and there's a little bit of context there that I think might be useful uh, for, for, people, uh, for people watching. So it sounds like there's a, there's a couple of things there that we should probably uh, give the luxury of depth to. One of them is Lindzen's ideas. And that might be a good place to start. Um, and the other one is uh, our comment with respect to the importance uh, of CO2 and the general environmentalist narrative and so forth. And maybe, maybe we get to that one a little bit later because I think that that requires some context in terms of what's going on in, in the discussion today. Okay, so, that's, you know, those, if, those, are, those are two great topics. Um, I'd be happy to, uh, to engage on those. So can, maybe we can just start by... Can we just steel man Lindzen's presentation a little bit and just try to understand what, you know, because he makes a very technical argument from what I can tell, which is something to the effect of greenhouse effects are most important at the equatorial regions and that you have these Coriolis effects which predominate the dynamics and the mixing away from there. And so the things that are happening at the poles don't really depend on the green greenhouse processes. That's like the 30,000 foot view from what I can tell. And, and then of course he brings in a lot of political arguments for the motivation for alarmism and so forth. Let's, uh, let's, let's skip over that. I mean, I, I, I mean, we could have a discussion about his political worldview, but uh, let's, let's, let's move on. Right on. Um, so, uh, so, you know, his, his argument was, uh, you know, the, 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 the tropics kind of stays where it is and just the poles flip around and uh, and everything that's going on is the poles and it's not really that's not really anything to do with the greenhouse effect that's based on discussions and data sets that were available in the 1980s right and a lot of uh, what Lindzen uh, um, uh, talks about uh, are relate to questions that existed in the 1980s right so in the 1980s we didn't have great models right so we had we had the beginnings of of of, of climate simulations uh we didn't have great um information about how things had changed in the past you know we had some information about how things had changed uh but uh but given you know where we are in the 1980s from the 1980s to the 2020s like that's 40 years more of information that we've been able to pull out of ice cores and tree rings and uh cave records uh, all of those things didn't exist um, uh, back in the 1980s. And it was still unclear uh, whether uh, the, the impacts of, of, of increasing greenhouse gases uh, was going to have a, a serious effect on, on temperature. So this is the, uh, what, what's called the climate sensitivity. So how much does the climate warm uh, if you uh, increase uh, the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere? Um, and so we, we we kind of like shorthand all of that into a simple number, right? So it's like, what was the climate sensitivity? Um, and uh, and people for a long time have thought it's around three degrees. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, some people have said, no, 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 it's much smaller. Um, uh, and some people have even said, no, no, no it's much larger. Um, what, and what does that mean? Just really quickly. What does that mean? Yeah. Three so, degrees. So yeah, so if you um, if you were to take it, it's a counterfactual, right? So if you were to take the planet as it is now, and instantaneously double the amount of carbon dioxide uh, in the atmosphere. So, uh, you know, so in the pre-industrial is like 280 parts per thousand, and you would double it, so that would give you 560 uh, or parts per million. Parts per million. Yeah. Parts per million. Um, and uh, and then you would just like kind of see, well, what happens? And so, so what happens is that. Uh, 
suddenly it's harder for the energy to get out. So there's so less energy leaves than, than comes in. So the planet as a whole warms up. Uh, the oceans take up most of that heat. Um, the water vapor changes, the ice melts, uh, the clouds shift. And eventually, you know, in a model, uh, what you get is uh, you, you get a, a change in temperature after, uh, you know, we generally run it at like 150 years or something like that. Um, and, and those changes of temperature are around three degrees, right? There's a range. At 150 years. Yeah, after 150 years, but this is that's a very that's a very extreme perturbation, right? So, so the real world hasn't done that, right? So, the real world, everything has kind of ramped up very slowly, uh, relatively speaking, and so uh, we are getting now. We're, we're not close to, uh, to to doubling of CO2. We're about three quarters of the way there, if you include everything. Um, uh, but but it's a much slower process, and 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 things are are happening much more slowly. Uh, so we use that climate sensitivity as as a as, as a metric, just to kind of try and, and, and get that from, from the observations, try and see what different models do with different parameterizations, um, different kinds of clouds and things like that. Uh, so, uh, so, th so this this number, right, is 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 kind of important. Um, and uh, back in the nineteen eighties, there was a uh, there were the, there were there was a group of folks that did an, an expert elicitation, and they went around and they asked all the scientists uh, who were working in this, "What do you think the number is?" And people gave a a, a range, uh, and like I think they asked like sixteen people, and fifteen out of sixteen of them said something around you know two to four degrees, right, which is pretty much the mainstream um, uh, view. And are they, um, are they working off of different models, or are they? This is they, 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 so. This was this was this was kind of pre lots of models. So there were a couple of models there, uh, but people didn't think that they were necessarily the best models, or they couldn't be improved. And so people were using you know their intuition or their knowledge about cloud processes or water vapor to to make you know to kind of like take that in, but then kind of make an expert judgment. So uh, there's like there's that, there's a number of free variables in, in those models cool. then. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, but 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 people generally thought that two to four degrees was about the right number. Um, and then there's one person in that elicitation who said uh, it was half a degree. And not only did they say it was half a degree, but they said there was no uncertainty, right? Whereas everybody else said, well, it's like two plus or minus or three plus or minus, you know. Uh, but then, then there was one person that said, no, no, it's half a degree and there's no uncertainty. So who was that, do you think? Well, I assume given the context of this conversation that the answer is going to be Richard Linson. Yes, you're right. You're right. Now, why is that, why is that interesting? Um, it's interesting because uh, there are certain consequences of whether that's true or whether the, the other folks were, were right. Um, and one of those things is that at the time, like we didn't know what the answer was. Uh, at the time, it, it was that if the if the climate sensitivity is large, right? If the clouds don't cancel out everything that's happening with carbon dioxide, uh, we expect that there will be an energy imbalance, right? That there will be more energy coming into the system than leaving, right? Now, if the climate sensitivity was small, then that imbalance would be small, and it would be very easily fixed by just a little bit of warming at the surface. Right, and so one of the consequences of a low climate sensitivity, no problem climate sensitivity, is that we wouldn't see a big imbalance, um, and 
Uh, and we didn't know at the time what that answer was going to be. And so that was that was a prediction, right? So the people that were saying, no, climate sensitivity is uh, significant, uh, were making a prediction. Uh, and this was this is very clearly articulated by uh, by Jim Hansen at the time. He said, we're making a prediction that we will see a large increase in the amount of heat in the ocean, because that's effectively the only place where you can store a large amount of heat that's coming in. Right, um, and folks like Lindzen who said, "No, no, no, there's no, there's no climate sensitivity, uh, or it's very small." Uh, effectively, they're saying, "Well, no, you're not going to see an increase in heat in the ocean." And this was before we'd really pulled that data together, and before uh, what we have now—the Argo floats and uh, and satellite observations of the surface temperatures—we uh, didn't know what the answer was. Right, but by the year 2000. And certainly by the year 2010, when a few more wrinkles uh, had been worked out, what we found is there's an absolutely massive increase in the amount of energy in the ocean. And that's totally incompatible with the notion that climate sensitivity is close to zero or is negligible. But there's right? a huge amount of turnover from the cold water at the depths of the ocean mm -hmm. to the surface. Mm -hmm. And that happens very, very slowly. And so the amount yeah. of energy that's getting absorbed at the surface is then going to get mixed over time with the cold mm -hmm. water that comes up. And so yeah. if you have this cyclical process, but you're seeing warming at the surface, that doesn't necessarily mean that there is warming 100% because you're going to have cold water that's coming up, right? And so you have a constant sink. Right. Hey folks, we really need your help to keep this project going. Please come over to patreon.com and consider giving just a couple dollars a month to keep powering our spaceship. Because without that, we just can't keep up the quality that we've been delivering and we want to improve that quality. And actually by joining that Patreon community, you're going to be able to access our face-to-face -face chats every week. Tell us what we're doing wrong. Tell us what we could do better. Bring us guests. Let's make this a really, really powerful project together. Also, share the episodes with someone that you think will enjoy it, because that's what guests look at when they decide whether they're going to do our show or not. Like it or not, people want to be seen. And so as we grow this audience, we have access to better and better conversations. And that's really, really easy for you to do. So make sure to subscribe to the channel if you haven't already. Give us a good review over at Apple or Spotify and share it. Leave comments. Come over to Discord. Talk to us. Tell us your thoughts. And let's make this a better project than it already is. Also, next April 7th and 8th, we are having our first Demystify Sci conference. It's going to be a pretty incredible lineup. Our keynote speaker is Pierre-Marie Robitaille, who is championing this revolution in astrophysics concerning the material nature of the stars. And there's a number of other speakers on topics ranging from mythology to economics and everything in between. So you're really going to want to go over and grab a ticket right now. And we will hang out there and we will catch up on what to do about the world in the future and how to explore it better at the Demystify Sci podcast. Back to the conversation. Uh, yes, but it's not. But it, but it can't take up heat indefinitely without getting warmer itself. And so what we're seeing is that the warmth of the ocean uh, is increasing uh, near the top where everything is is mixing down, and then it's also increasing in the intermediate waters where stuff is kind of coming from the from the southern ocean, and it's in its warming uh, at depth, even even at the uh, even at the level of four thousand meters, we're seeing warming in the ocean, and we can we know that. That's right because the ocean is expanding as well, right? So we can we can tell that the sea levels are rising. We have we have satellite altimeters that measure uh, the sea level to uh, in the global uh, sense uh, to within a centimeter, 
and we're seeing this rise. And when we add up all the bits, how much of the ice is coming in, melting from the glaciers, from, from the ice sheets, how much of the, uh, of, of the ocean is warming, it all fits together. And so we have a very consistent picture of what's happening uh, that only makes sense if climate sensitivity is non-negligible, right? And uh, Professor Linsen really doesn't ever engage with the more modern uh, information there. And so, you know, he's still talking about the iris effect. He's still talking about cloud feedbacks when it's clear that that cannot be the right answer. I mean, it's still not clear to me, like you're, you're saying that there's this measurable warming of the ocean and, mm -hmm. you know, great. Or, or not great, actually, as it may be, but yeah, what? Uh, but, magnitude, yes. But, but pe pegging that to this molecule, I think, is really okay. The, okay, the question so that, that we haven't gotten that, to. That's that's a great question. So, so the the increase of uh, energy in the uh, in the ocean tells us that there's a that there's an imbalance in the energy budget of the whole planet, right? So there's more energy coming in than leaving. Now, there's multiple ways that you could get that. Right, uh, you could get it uh, because the sun was brighter. Right, so if the sun was brighter, then we'd have more energy coming in, and there'd be less leaving, and so we'd be accumulating energy. Right, so that's that's a valid um, that's that's a valid hypothesis uh, at, uh, at, the, at the outset. Um, and then there are other things that could be uh, that could be changing. Uh, you know, you could say, well, maybe we're deforesting, and that's changing the surface energy balance, and that's having an effect. Or uh, there are there are pollutants like uh, like soot or 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 other kinds of aerosols that we're putting into the air uh, that are changing the energy uh, balance. But these things have to be big, right? So uh, we also realize that these these cycles naturally occur too, right? So that the you know whether it's Milankovitch cycles or something, there is some very regular constant shifting of these temperatures over time. Right, right. right. So, so and we're, so we're definitely on the upswing of that. Mm, well, not of Milankovitch. So, so Mil if you look at the Milankovitch parameters, uh, we we would actually be we would actually be cooling, and and we're kind of bottoming out of a cooling cycle that's lasted since the uh, the mid Holocene. So, around uh, eight thousand years was was the was the peak uh, insulation at sixty north, and then it's been going down uh, since then. But uh, you have to remember that Milankovitch is on time scales of you know, 20,000, 40,000, 100,000 years, right? So uh, we've not detected any anomalous wobbles in the Earth's orbit that are not explained by what's happening with uh, with, with the standard orbital cycles. Uh, and so when you're looking at what's happening, you know, in the last 150 years, where you've seen this very rapid warming, uh, it, it, it's, it's A, the wrong sign for what you would expect from Milankovitch, and B, it's happening way too fast. So, so there's a real mismatch uh, between uh, uh, the, the expectations from Milankovitch and what we're actually seeing, mm. um, but but you're right. There, there, there are cycles, right? So there there are solar cycles, right? So we, we can see we can see these eleven year uh, solar cycles, uh, but we've been measuring those, right? So uh, again, you know, this is something that in the 1980s we didn't have great data, right? But now we have uh, over 40 years of satellite measurements of the insulation from the sun, how much energy the sun is bringing in. 
and it hasn't changed by some magic, some some massive amount. It, it's gone up and it's gone down with the solar cycle. Um, right now, we're just going into a uh, into a solar maximum. Um, but uh, this solar maximum is not as big as the last couple of solar maximums. So so overall, we've uh, we've actually been getting less energy from the sun since the 1950s, as far as we can tell. Uh, and so that doesn't that doesn't help us explain things. Uh, but then there's also uh, in, uh, you, you mentioned, you know, okay, well, how do you know it? Carbon dioxide, you know, of, of all the things, right? Uh, lots of things have been changing, right? So, uh, so how do we know uh, that, that that that's the, that that's the cause? Well, it turns out that each of the different things that could be causing a problem or could be causing this change uh, have different fingerprints, right? And some of them have very unique fingerprints. Um, so, if you if you take a, a climate model. And you say, okay, well, let me increase the carbon dioxide, or let me increase methane, let me increase uh, or decrease the amount of, 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 uh, of particulates in, in the atmosphere. Uh, they generally have uh, patterns of responses that are uh, recognizable. So uh, if, you, uh, if you increase the amount of carbon dioxide, you get a little bit of warming in the tropics, you get more warming at the poles, right? We mentioned that earlier. Um, and you get warming in the troposphere, right? So that's kind of up to the level uh, of where the weather is, where the big convective clouds is. And then above that, in the stratosphere, where the ozone layer is, uh, you get cooling. And it turns out that that's very special to carbon dioxide. You don't get that with methane. You don't get that with aerosols. You don't get that with the sun. Uh, but this, uh, but this pattern of, of warming below and cooling aloft uh, was something that was predicted by uh, Manabi and Weatherall. So, so this is going back to the 1960s, uh, and Manabi won the Nobel Prize for for physics uh, in large part because of because of that paper. Uh, and he, they published that in 1967, and they showed very clearly that if you take into account all of the different uh, spectral elements of, of carbon dioxide and, and water vapor and all the rest of it, uh, then carbon dioxide would lead to a cooling in the stratosphere. Mm, but not, wa it, not water, right? Uh, water, no. Water, so the, the, the stratosphere is very dry, and so mm. uh, water vapor changes are almost all uh, in the uh, in the in the lower part of the atmosphere. Uh, though there's a couple of exceptions we could we could get to. Um, and so uh, you you don't get that if if uh, if something else is going on. And so uh, again, like in the 1980s, we didn't have long time series of temperatures in the stratosphere, but now we do. Now we have 40 years of temperatures in the stratosphere. And what are they doing? You can guess. Are they cooling or warming? Well, uh, based off of the, 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 the glee on your face, I right. would suggest cooling. Yes, you would. You would be correct. It's, it's not glee. I, 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 it's funny. I, I, I take I take absolutely no pleasure in the fact that mainstream climatology is correct. Like it's 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 a disaster, right? I I I don't want our predictions to be correct, but I do want us to uh, understand why those predictions come from where, where they come from and and what that means. Uh, but it isn't like I. I you know, like we're, we're we're chatting here, and yeah, yeah, okay. Like I mean, there's a little bit of banter, um, but uh, but really, uh, we're just uh, you know, <laughs> it's, uh, we're 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 partying before the storm here, right? Um, I mean, before we move on from this, uh, I, I I was looking at some of these curves of the glacial periods and the the temperature change over the last say five hundred thousand years or so, and it sure. looks it looks like the temperature 
was certainly more maxed out in the last interglacial period than it is today. That's true. And it it looks like in general, if you kind of, they're kind of these little sawtooth spikes. And then the the glacial periods seem to be sort of much longer with this, you know, Mm -hmm. downstream. But I I wonder, in some cases, it appears that there is some hysteresis, like the maximum, Mm -hmm. maybe you have maximum uh, solar energy coming in, but it takes a while for things to warm up after that. Do you think that that? Uh, Yeah. Yeah, so 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 I think I think that that's 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 very likely to be true. Um, so uh, the la- the interglacials kind of come on a roughly hundred thousand year uh, timescale, uh, and they last between ten thousand and fifty thousand years um, uh, overall. So the last interglacial was actually relatively short compared to other interglacials. So uh, so that one that one that one's called the last interglacial. Um, also stage stage five e, um, and each of the uh, like stage seven, stage nine, stage eleven, uh, they're those other interglacials. They're those the, those peaks. Um, and what happens there is that uh, uh, depending on exactly how the eccentricity and the obliquity and the uh, precession uh, line up, uh, you can have very very fast overshoots and then come back down, or you can have broader, uh, less less uh, less dramatic changes. And so so stage eleven people think uh, lasted uh, maybe fifty thousand years, maybe even longer um because uh, there was there was a it, it, things were moving slower and so when when the processional cycles which are the fast ones uh, came along it was able to stay deglaciated for multiple processional cycles uh whereas uh, for the last interglacial, it only deglaciated for one processional cycle so so it was a very uh, a short and sweet um uh event uh but uh, it's it's clear that um uh, that particularly in the Arctic, uh, it was warmer at uh, the last interglacial than it has been yet uh, so far. This uh, uh, this interglacial. So uh, so yeah, I mean, we there's there's some there's some very interesting patterns there, and and there are and there's lots of um, high frequency relative. So this is thing high frequency for glacial period variations. Uh, that means you know thousand year type oscillations uh, in the um, uh, in the record uh, that are associated with uh, you know big uh, iceberg uh, events in the North Atlantic uh, oscillations of the uh, of the overturning stream function in the in the ocean uh, absolutely fascinating uh, dynamics um, but again on yeah it's not it's not very clean right there, this this cycles aren't you know, we would love to think that it's perfect sawtooth, but there's a lot of variation in the way that these curves shape up, assuming yeah. that they're interpreted correctly from the data themselves. But- yeah, I mean, we have, uh, <laughs> again, one of the things that that's new is that, uh, you know, in the 1990s, when we first really started to get those ice core records, that really changed everybody's view about what was what, what could possibly happen. There were a lot more, there was a lot more noise in that than there had been in the previous data, which had been taken from relatively low resolution ocean sediments, right? And everything, a lot of things were smoothed out in that data. Uh, the ice cores gave us a much finer view of what was happening at what time. Yeah, can you can you break uh, that down? Like, actually, I've, I had a friend actually call me up and ask me the other day how, <laughs> how, how it was that you determined temperature from an ice core. And, I, and it, I understand it a bit in terms of the oxygen uh, isotope ratios, but right. maybe you have a very clean way of explaining that to people who don't understand, because it is a secondary readout from... You're not just measuring CO2 inside of these ice cores or 
you don't get a thermometer readout from them directly, obviously. Right. So, so the isotopes are very interesting. And in fact, you know, my, 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 all my postdoc work and all of my actual good ideas in terms of uh, how to understand stuff was, was related to, to oxygen isotopes, uh, which is kind oh, of perfect. Um, uh, so, uh, the idea is that, uh, uh, oxygen comes in multiple flavors, right? So, uh, the two main ones is oxygen 16, which is most of it. And then oxygen 18, which is slightly heavier. Um, and chemically they don't really make any difference, but, but when things change phase, uh, it turns out that, uh, when you, uh, when you want to condense water, the heavy water condenses first. Right. Or when you want to evaporate water, the light water evaporates first. Uh, and so uh, as things move around, you know, so in the in the water cycle, you know, we evaporate things basically in the in the tropics and subtropics, and then it gets advected to the pole. Uh, and then you lose water as you get towards the colder parts of the of the planet. Um, and so depending on the temperature, you lose a certain amount of the heavy isotope. So when you get snow that's landing on Greenland, uh, what you see is that uh, the colder it is uh, when it's snowing, uh, the less oxygen 18 there is, right? The heavy one that's gone. And so it's only, it's mostly oxygen 16. And so when you look at the ice core going down, which is effectively going back in time, uh, what you see are these uh, peaks and wiggles of uh, of the oxygen 18 curve that correspond to warm phases and cold phases. Now, the are there, are there any other factors though? Just just to oh, sure. be absolutely sure, like yeah. is there anything else besides temperature that's going to affect those? Uh, oh yeah, so 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 where the water is coming from makes a difference, right? So if the water is coming from the Pacific, it's gone further and more stuff has drained out uh, than if it had come from the Greenland Sea. Uh, so if the proportion of water from the Atlantic to the Pacific has changed, then that would have a, that would give you a signal in the O18 as well. Um, uh, changes in seasonality, right? So uh, during the last ice age, it very rarely snowed in the wintertime on Greenland because it was too cold, right? So it was, it was more desert-like. And so the seasonal cycle was different. And so that imparts uh, a kind of rectified effect on the oxygen 18 as well. And so, so calibrating those wiggles going back in time has been a bit of a, a bit of a saga, right? So there was the initial calibration, uh, which, you know, people thought, well, that's probably okay. But it, but it turned out to, to be wrong by about a factor of two, uh, compared to what we think now. And the way that we, uh, were able to better calibrate that with some really neat geophysics where you had very, very sharp changes in temperature. And it turns out that in a column of gas, when you have a very sharp change of temperature, it, 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 there's, a, there's a, a settling effect, but that only happens when things change very quickly. Um, and you can detect that with uh, the isotopes of, uh, of nitrogen. Uh, in in the column, and it turns out that you can calibrate the oxygen eighteen uh, thermometer against these uh, isotopes of nitrogen, and you get a you get a, a different calibration than than people had thought, and actually one that makes a lot more sense. And that's uh, not so it's was, not as sensitive to travel distance. The nitrogen. Uh, no, it's or? so it turns out that that's a, that's a it's a totally independent and it's a purely local test. Uh, it doesn't depend on anything else, and so so you are able to use that to calibrate the oxygen eighteen um, where something quickly ha where where something fast happens, and so you can do that. All of those big wiggles in the ice age 
you could do that. You could do that every so often there. Uh, the, 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 the younger dryest event, you could do it there because things changed very quickly. Um, and so you could use that to calibrate it. And then that changed, that changed the calibration um, uh, a little bit. And so we got a better view of, of, of exactly how many degrees per uh, change in, in the oxygen 18. Uh, uh, but I, I, you know, in the, the, this is, um, this get this gets quite technical uh, quite quickly. Um, but but the the interesting thing is uh, that after you know many years of this, we have multiple ways of doing this. Now we we have that different calibration. We have uh, um, speleothem records. So so these are cave records uh, where you uh, you look you look at the uh, the stalagmites uh, kind of building up. Um, and each of the layers, they're, they're, they're made of calcium carbonate. Uh, so calcium carbonate, CaCO3. It turns out that the O's, uh, which also have O16 and O18 in them, uh, the fractionation of that depends directly on the temperature in the cave. Hmm. Um, and so uh, there's a little bit of a signal from the rain uh, because that can change as well. Uh, but those records from the caves uh, line up really really well with the ice cores and then go and do that's actually that's actually i've I've spent an inordinate amount of time in caves and they're not supposed to vary relative to surface temperatures very much and so that's that's exactly right so if the surface temperature changes on long time scale then that eventually gets into the cave well that's what i'm trying to say is that they the their temperature is supposed to be not equilibrated with the surface temperatures but it but it is but over a long time, you, you, you lose the seasonal variation, for instance. Um, uh, so, so caves are, are warm in the winter and, and, and cool in the in the summer. Uh, but they generally respond to you know how warm the Earth is above it over very long time periods. But they also um, they also react to how warm the Earth is below them as well, right? It, that doesn't change so much. So, the, so the geothermal flux in most of these places is not varying on a uh, on a on a century by century basis, that's 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 driven by you know very deep uh, things going on in the uh, in in the in the crust, and uh, and that that does not change uh, very quickly. Uh, but then you've also got the the signal from the rainfall. So the the signal from the rainfall actually uh, in a lot of these places is the dominant uh, is the dominant term. Uh, so, but you look at these things and and they line up. So you, you've got this these these set of caves in uh, in China. Uh, that every time there's a big event in the North Atlantic, right, and the ice cores do this, uh, they do that as well, and and so you're seeing uh, you're seeing these kind of like downwind uh, imprints of, uh, in this case, you know, for instance, variations in the overturning stream function in the North Atlantic, the ocean, the the part of the ocean circulation that's kind of that's kind of like goes with the Gulf Stream and then kind of like goes down in the Norwegian Sea and the Greenland Sea. These things are all connected, and we have a much better view now uh, of what's going on and what makes up these records uh, than we had in the 1980s. So, so this might be a good point to bring up uh, another issue that you'd mentioned when you you initially emailed us. And uh, so, there's this somewhat regular sawtooth that let's assume that this mapping of temperature data onto the past is decent for the purposes. I mean, you. You've done a pretty good job to to at least justify that belief. I think that it's it's reasonable in what you've said. So we have this uh, sawtooth pattern, and I remember, of course, you know, memory is a, a terrible thing to lean on. But I had remembered that the last time we talked, uh, I mentioned, okay, well, these interglacials are generally pretty short. 
usually the glacial, the downslope in the glacial period lasts a long time. So, you know, this interglacial that we're living uh, uh, through right now, it should be over pretty soon and things will start getting cold again. And eventually the the poles should, you know, regularly freeze over and, and uh, this won't be a problem anymore. And, and you said something to the effect of, no, 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 that's not going to happen. And, uh, you know, of course, my memory filed that away is that's not going to happen ever. But I, I went back and listened to it. And you actually said that's not going to happen like it had, essentially, is what you were trying to say. And that we, w- we shouldn't expect it for 50, 100,000 years, something like that, which would be much longer than, than generally for the other interglacials in the past. And uh, so I just wanted to set, get, get the chance to set the record straight on that. Uh, yeah, so uh, well, <laughs> so uh, people as, as soon as people worked out that the the, the last interglacials were paced by Milankovic uh, back in the 1970s, uh, people saw how long the last interglacial had been, which was about 10,000 years, and they saw how long the Holocene had been, and they said, "Oh, it's about 10,000 years. Oh my gosh, we are due for another ice age." Mm. Uh, and there was a there was a little. I, uh, maybe a cottage industry of folks that uh, that started looking for little ice ages uh, everywhere. So you know, it, it, it cooled from the 1940s to the 70s. Oh my God, there's an ice, there's an ice age starting, and uh, um, and there was uh, uh, you know there was there was there was one other thing I can't remember what it was, but uh, um, but it, 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 that notion was predicated on the idea that we knew exactly how this interglacial was going to go in the absence of us, um, and that was not actually clear at all in the 1970s um i think we have a better sense of uh, of of what we would have expected now and so without us um uh, i think the consensus is though not a huge number of people work on this so that's probably not worth very much uh but the idea is that uh, that we probably would have skipped um it would have gone up like this gone down not de- not glaciated uh come back up again and then maybe you would deglaciate on the on the downside of the next hump Right, which would put you in a, an interglacial uh, of about thirty thousand years. And now we, we've never know. seen that before, though. But this is well, we have. Yeah, oh, so we have. so, so okay. when you when you go back further, you see uh, interglacials that lasted thirty thousand years, and mm. you see interglacials that last fifty thousand years. Like right? a million. So, this is a million years ago, or something. Very long. I, well, I mean, going back over the last million years, right? So, uh, so there's there's how many do we have good information for? You know, we have good information for you know maybe maybe seven cycles, seven seven interglacials, uh, and they vary in in time. Uh, but but they're kind of quantized, right? So so it's it's either ten or thirty or fifty, right? Mm. Maybe you could have longer ones as as you, as you go back. Um, we've been doing that. This has been happening for about two and a half million years, um, and we don't have quite the uh, the resolution of stuff going back uh, much before that. Um. Uh, so, uh, so I mean, other I mean, uh, William Runneman, Bill Runneman, um, uh, quite famously wrote a couple of papers. Said, no, 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 we we should have been in a new uh, in a new uh, ice age uh, by now. And in fact, we hadn't. Uh, his his theory was uh, because of the uh, uh, the uh, emissions of, of methane and, and carbon dioxide from early uh, pastoralists um, uh, and uh, and people starting to do farming uh, in say from the middle Holocene onwards. Uh, but that that's suggests an, an enormous hysteresis, right? 
Uh, well, it suggests an enormous sensitivity to very small changes in greenhouse gases. So, uh, so I don't. I, people generally don't really think that. I think, um, uh, but it's uh, you know he 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 pushed that quite strongly for a number of papers over a number of years. Uh, he, he's an actually a fascinating person to have on, and if you want to have like a history uh, and somebody making the pitch for that, uh, he would be a great guest. Uh, he's. Um, uh, he, he's written, you know, the textbooks on this, uh, and, uh, and you and said Bill Runneman, Bill Rudman, R-U-D-D-I-M-A-N. Uh, he's, I mean, I think he's retired now, but, uh, but, uh, but he may still be, uh, interested in doing something. Like that. That's our bread and butter. Retired people have nothing to lose, you know, <laughs> yeah. oh. and so much time on their hands. Well, there's, there's that. Yes. Um, Okay, uh, uh, so let me let me get back to whether we're going to see this uh, this happening. Mm-hmm. So let's 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 imagine that um, either Bill Rudderman is correct and that a small amount of carbon dioxide has pushed us out of an imminent uh, ice age, uh, or that the the mainstream consensus is correct and that this uh, interglacial was 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 due to last uh, thirty thousand years uh, or more. What's happened now, uh, and how is that changing? Well, what's happened now is that we've warmed the planet uh, by uh, you know over a degree now um, since uh, since since the um, uh, you know since since the uh, since the mid nineteenth century or so. Um, and what we see everywhere is mountain glaciers in retreat, right? We're seeing, um, uh, you know, the, there was just a, a story uh, today, you know, uh, alpine glaciers in Switzerland have lost like 10% of their mass, entire their entire mass, uh, just in the last couple of years. Uh, we are seeing ice caps in places like uh, Ellesmere. Uh, they're retreating. And one of the interesting things that that happens then is that, uh, where 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 you have just that ice cap where the snow is just kind of sitting there, it's not moving, it's not a glacier, it's just it's just snow that never melted, uh, and where it's melting now, you can you can you can try and carbon date the uh, the moss and the grasses that are underneath the snow, and it turns out that when you do that, they have no radiocarbon, right? And if they have no radiocarbon left, that means they haven't interacted with the atmosphere for at least fifty five thousand years. Right, so uh, that means that, that effectively uh, those are, are relics from the last interglacial, and so we're seeing places in in Ellesmere and and the Canadian Archipelago that are now retreating more than they were uh, in the last interglacial, or at least the end of the last interglacial. Uh, and so all of those things are moving in totally the wrong direction, right? And so by the time that we're done, uh, by the time that the ice sheets have come into uh, equilibrium with uh, what we end up doing to the planet, and we haven't, we're not done with the planet, right? So, so uh, it's not clear what that equilibrium will be um, uh, yet. Um, uh, it will be the the the. The, the 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 amount of cooling that you would need to have to get them to come back uh is going to be uh very hard right it's it's, it's going to be too much for the milankovitch forcing to be able to deliver um and so when people have done these kinds of simulations and they say okay well you know here's what milankovitch would be telling us would be happening you know either 
either like a 30,000 year or like a, a 10,000 or a 30,000 year interglacial. And then you put in uh, the carbon cycle changes that we've made. And then you just wait for that to, uh, to kind of like go through the system, which takes many, uh, many tens to hundreds of thousands of years. Uh, then you, you, you don't trigger a new ice age for a few cycles. Um, and so the chances that we're going to ever see, uh, I mean, ever like see, like you know, it's, I don't want to say ever. Uh, the chances that the, that the next few uh, processional dips are going to lead to a to an ice age are much less than they used to be. Um, and so my estimate, uh, though, I mean, like what I don't know what a what a prediction for fifty thousand years in in the future is really worth. Uh, but my my prediction for what it's worth um, uh, is that uh, that we will not go into a new ice age uh, in in thirty thousand years time, uh, and maybe not even in fifty thousand years time. So something that is really central for me in all of these discussions is that I think that every single civilization that has ever ended. And you could probably put an asterisk on that, but has ended because of climate change. Like this is just, a, I, I think that most of them that you look, it's like extended periods of drought or weird things start to happen. Maybe like with the Roman Empire, you could point to lead in the water. But in general, it seems that, okay, we we grow up in a time where things are a certain way. There's a dramatic shift and then civilization ends. And so from that, I look at it and I'm like, okay, so climate change is 100% absolutely the biggest threat to civilization because we are not optimized to deal with a planet that changes around us because civilization by its very nature is a structure that has a ton of hysteresis. We do things this way and we are going to continue to do things this way and we will do so into the grave. And we like to live in the lowlands by the water since we forever. We do. We love the water. <laughs> and so, like, I think something yeah. like... Yeah, so most um, people live by the water within 60 miles of the water. And like we know that sea levels have changed dramatically, and we know that civilizations are buried underneath the waves. And so it's like all of these things are a given. There's this other piece of it too, though, which is that civilizations have spent a lot of time throwing virgins into volcanoes because they think that it's going to appease the gods and prevent climate change. Yes. And I see the monolithic focus on carbon dioxide as being a version of us throwing the virgins into the volcanoes because Mm. it is a molecule that can be targeted, that can be sequestered, and that indulgences can be bought for it. You can buy a carbon offset for the flight that you take. There are marketplaces for being able to buy and sell these things that allow you to change absolutely nothing about the way that you live right and then to say i my my carbon footprint is is really small and it's okay and i'm like i think that that's that's the thing that really alarms me about this i don't have a problem with the the science i think that science is one of those things that you can pull together a really compelling narrative that's based on solid research and my issue is not with the the foundational research or the data. My issue is with the larger social structures of what this does to people and what it allows to continue because I think that science is, at the end of the day, the only tool that a state has by which it chooses to do things. 
Objectively. Uh, Objectively. Well. Like, we don't have God anymore. <laughs> like, in, yeah, in, exactly. in theory yeah, I, I, and in an ideal world. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I think you you give science far too much credit uh, in terms of uh, controlling anything. Um, well, the politicians love it, though, right? I mean, they're they're always well, like I mean, they, scientists they, say, they, and scientists say this. Yeah. Well, like, I mean, science politicians and people love the products of science. They love sure. the products of technology. Okay. Oh, um, sure. And so, uh, you know, you're always wanting to uh, take your idea and attach it to science because science has uh, more kudos. <laughs> than just it's my idea right um so uh so so you you end up with this um with this this kind of weird uh you know everybody wants to be like more scientific but then when the science tells you that their plan is 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 not going to work or that it's like kind of give you the opposite effect of what they expect uh then they're very keen on on dismissing the science so it's it's a little bit of a uh, a, a a binary uh, thing there, but I, I, I because people talk about science, uh, I don't think that I, I think people just like, like back in like back in the old days, people talked about religion a lot, people talked about God a lot, but really that was a cover for you know people's like kind of desire for power and desire to uh, to to, uh, to to mess up other people's lives and desire for conquest and things like that. But it was all blamed on on religion and. and and I think that what happens when you have a challenge to a civilization, uh, like like the environmental challenges uh, that we've had, and carbon dioxide is not is not the first one that we've had. You know, we've had we had issues with with dirty water, we've had issues with 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 dirty air, uh, we've had issues with ozone depletion. Um, the same the same kinds of rhetoric emerge around each of those things it's got nothing to do with the with the essence of what's causing it it's got nothing to do with whether carbon dioxide is is a particular molecule or whether you can do anything with it or not uh you know people were saying very similar things about ozone people were saying similar things about sulfur dioxide people were saying similar things to about pcbs in the river i mean yeah you know they're not um uh, the the scientific quality of of these uh, of these threats uh, is not what people uh, then deal with. But 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 you're right. People are going to want to um, make it go away, right? So uh, they will prefer the status quo to doing anything about this. And so things that allow them to maintain the status quo um, are going to be favored over things where they have to change or where something becomes more difficult or you have to do something a little bit differently. Uh, and I think that that's, that's inevitable, right? You know, we're, we are creatures of habit um, and uh, we have a great deal of inertia. Uh, you know, we don't want to change, right? And uh, uh, and change is scary for uh, uh, a lot of people, whether it's economic change or technological change or or, or just just getting old, personal change, right? You know, p- people don't like those things. Um, and so when you come along and you say, well, this thing that we're doing uh, is having a consequence that's much bigger than than we thought, and and that that was true for uh, ozone depleting chemicals. It was true for burning dirty coal. Uh, it was true for pouring uh, continual amounts of shit in the water. Literal, literal, literal shit. You know, yeah. so you know, um, you know, people said, well, you know, it'd be too expensive to to build sewer systems. It'd be too expensive to um, uh, to clean up the coal. It would be too expensive to uh, switch to, uh, to to a different kind 
of uh, aerosol spray. Um, and people but come I think up that those are different. I think that. that those are different. Like I think that those are those are those are different in kind because if you just look at let's say C8, which is the shit that DuPont was dumping in the Ohio River, that they had paper after paper that said that they knew that it caused reproductive damage and had teratogenic effects and they were taking pregnant women off of assembly lines and they were keeping it quiet or 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 whatever substance you can point to where there is a there's a clear marker of toxicity. Right. There's a difference in the conversation around carbon dioxide because it feels like yeah. carbon dioxide is something that if we took the pressure off the biosphere through our manufacturing, through yeah. our wastefulness, through like the like I, I guide for when I'm not uh, when I'm not doing the podcast, I'm a backcountry guide. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I'm part of the outdoor industry. And the thing that's crazy about the outdoor industry is that these are people who love nature. They love right. the planet. They love being outdoors. They take airplane flights everywhere for a few days. They package things in massive quantities of plastic. And at the end of the day, they dump everything in the trash. They get back on the plane and they fly away again. And I'm like, you can buy a carbon credit that will offset every single one of those things. And it will not change the fact that you have still trashed the planet, despite the fact that someone somewhere has planted some trees to cover for your carbon. Because the carbon is not the thing that's killing the planet. The thing that's killing the planet is everything else. And so I'm concerned that what happens is that when our focus is on carbon and is on rising global temperatures, what we're not taking care of is the fact that, hey, hold on a second, we have a planet that needs to be able to balance itself in the face of these changes. We have a civilization that needs to be resilient enough to deal with these changes. And the narrative is so focused on the monolith of this molecule that has that that in and of itself does not have the kind of toxicity profile as right. the plastic that is in the cliff bar wrapper or the 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 rubber that is in the car tire or the C8 that's being dumped petroleum. in the barrel or the petroleum, petroleum in the car tires like 7 pounds or something like right. it's no, no, so so, so you look so 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 you're right sustainability uh, of everything is 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 required and uh, and climate change is 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 a not the whole part of that absolutely uh, but climate change is a stressor on all of those things, right? It's uh, it's a stressor on the ecosystems that you uh, that you like walking through. It's a stressor on the water resources that maintain them. It's a stressor on the ski resorts that uh, that you that, that that these folks will like to go to. Um, but the plants love it. Changing, to be fair, sorry, the plants the plants love all that CO two. To be fair. Oh, the plants, yeah, but but it's never been you know, greener. Right? Only, they'll only they'll only grow if there's enough water, and so or if there isn't too much water, uh, and nutrients, and so uh, you know the, the, all the carbon dioxide that you want to put in the atmosphere is still not going to make the Sahara bloom. Uh, you know, it's it's uh, you know it, it's one of those things that makes a difference at the margin where that was the only thing that was limiting growth, uh, but most places that's not the only thing that's limiting growth. But I think that's um, what makes it so tricky is that it's not just this toxic molecule, right? It's not just some poison. Well, by I mean, itself, the carbon right? dioxide, like the toxicity of carbon dioxide, is neither here nor there. I mean, like you know, I, I guess if you if you were in a room of uh, you know twenty thousand ppm, then that's toxic. I, I I don't know what the exact level is, but that's not why that's not why we care about carbon dioxide. We care about it because it's a radiatively active gas. It's not it's not because it's biologically harmful. 
uh, the uh, and and the climate is 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 big, um, and it affects all of these things. Yeah, well, and and to that end, you can't just get rid of it, right? You can't just get rid of like you're not trying to get rid of carbon dioxide. Also, no, we're trying right? to stop it. I mean, I mean, the goal is to stop it growing uh, any more in the atmosphere, and to hopefully bring it back down uh, a little bit from where it is. Um, uh, but no, I mean, you know, obviously, you know, carbon dioxide is uh, is is a key part of the carbon cycle. Though we don't want to we don't want to get rid of it. But but when you have too much of a good thing, uh, then it has these other effects uh, associated with the climate, and that's. That's that's why this is a different kind of pollutant, um, uh, and so you know, it's it's really it's really unlucky, right? I mean, it, it it's really unlucky that the temperature of the Earth is just at the point where carbon dioxide is a big absorber of uh, of infrared radiation coming from that temperature, right? That's that's just an accident of of cosmic history. Uh, it didn't have to be that way. It's not inevitable that that was that, that was the case, and that we have all of these stores of of, of fossil carbon just like sitting around uh, waiting to be burnt. Uh, you know, those those are like nobody planned that. <laughs> um, uh, Increasingly less of those stores, from what I understand. Well, there's still a lot, though, <laughs> um, and uh, and and more than enough to, uh, uh, to, you know, we're talking about the ice age, you know. So, so if we if we burn all the things that we just that we just know about now, uh, then that's enough to uh, uh, to to put us, you know, effectively as warm again as the ice age was cold, mm. right? Mm. So that's uh, that's that's if we could find them and suck very... them all out of the earth. And no, that's just that's the stuff that we know. Mm. You but it, but it does seem like we've passed that. Do you think that we've passed the peak oil? I would like to think so. Um, uh, and you know, and you see, you know, we talk about tipping points. You know, there are social tipping points. I think, I think, uh, you know, we're seeing social tipping points towards uh, electric vehicles. Um, uh, you know, in in a lot of places around the world, not quite in the US yet, but uh, but in Norway, uh, more than fifty percent of new cars are. Uh, are now electric, uh, and you're seeing you're going to see that kind of spreading from uh, from Europe and Japan onwards. Um, uh, so, so yeah, I mean, you know, to the extent that we mostly use, uh, we, mo- we mostly burn oil for uh, transport, right? Um, but each of those electric cars, right, they depend upon oil to be manufactured. They're made out of they have tons of plastics in them, and the, right, the, the but, tires but, but, are made out of oil, and the, but, the, but the problem, are made out of problem oil. is not. The problem is not oil, right? Per se, the problem for the climate is burning of oil and releasing carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. If you use oil as feedstock for plastics, uh, which is a small fraction of of of, of the oil that's uh, that, that's dug out of the ground, uh, that actually doesn't really contribute to the climate problem. Though it does contribute to to your uh, the problem that you that you raised in terms of you know trashing the environment and uh, and, and leaving layers of plastic uh, everywhere in in the world. I just think it's it's a, like a much bigger problem if we if we our entire material economy depends upon plastics and pa- plastics depend on fossil fuels, not even the fuel side of things, but just the petrol itself. Right. That's something that we have to find works workarounds for alongside of things too that really well, I mean I mean we can we can make plastics out of cellulose we can make plastics out of uh, you know pretty much any kind of organic molecules I mean oil is 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 convenient uh, but but like I said you know like it, if if you were just using oil to make plastic a you wouldn't be 
trucking oil around to, to uh, anything like the extent that we're doing now, uh, and B, the, the 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 climate impact of that would be uh, would be pretty negligible. Uh, so uh, if that's you know if uh, if the issue is we still need oil for plastics and and various uh, you know high tech uh, this that's and the others, uh, fine like you know that's that's a tiny part of the issue. The issue for the climate is the burning of fossil fuels that produces carbon dioxide and and a little bit of soot. I, uh, I completely understand. I just find it an interesting uh, shared interest of those both those two environmental camps. It, it <laughs> seems like you're knocking out two birds with one stone by if you're fixated on the burning if you're fixated on moving away from fossil fuels you're also inevitably fixated on moving away from them in manufacturing and so forth too if you've developed parallel industry like parallel energy sources and parallel ways of of manufacturing it just seems like there's a lot in common in those two yeah at the end of the day like we spend a lot of time in conversation with people that are very suspicious of narratives around climate change or whatever centralized scientific narrative is presented mm-hmm. and my central focus in those conversations is figuring out how to get people on the same page about the things that are really important because i think that it's not possible to move forward with some significant fraction of a nation being on the opposite side of a debate that everybody's like that that the other side is like hey we have to do this or we're all gonna die like i don't think that you can survive as a nation if 50 percent of people are like if we don't do this we're gonna die and the other 50 percent are like no we don't have to do anything yeah i don't think we're in that i don't think we're in that space at all i think i think we're in uh in a in a point where you know, twenty percent of people uh, understand and uh, and and want to act. Um, uh, you know, uh, preventatively to uh, to stop things getting worse. Uh, and then there's like, you know, maybe five to ten percent of people who vehemently don't want anything to change um, and spend a lot of time and are very loud. And then there's the vast majority of people. Uh, in the middle who recognize that there's a problem but don't really know what to do about it or how it fits in with their real world uh their real world decisions uh, and so, so and, and so those tales are the ones that are that are shaping the discourse well because, i think that, but that's, that's true about any discourse of is, course uh, absolutely you know, like you know the, the the people at the uh at the loud ends frame the discussion uh but we manage uh as a society uh with having you know quite loud and opposed voices on the edges and the vast majority of people kind of just go along with uh with 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 something uh i would i would like to think more moderate and sensible now it's not the the case that anything that is like in between the two voices is is right right that that's that's a terrible uh that's a terrible philosophy but um uh but uh but we we you know we've managed uh we've managed to survive with uh, with with people being on uh, like individual people being on on very opposed sides on many many questions, uh, but but one of the things that that happens though is that you know are, are we are we hearing this same discussion about ozone depleting chemicals? 
We're not. Were we hearing that in the 1980s? Yes. You know, very similar, uh, very similar discourse was happening in the 1980s. The the adverts in the uh, in in the New York Times, the the polemics in Congress, the uh, uh, the uh, the industry um, uh, the the industry led talking points uh, that were all scientific nonsense. The the few scientists kind of standing up and and saying, "Oh no no no, we need to do something about this." Um, uh, and at the time, you would have said. Oh no, this is very highly polarized. You know, how are we going to get past all this? Well, we got past it because there were enough people who were sensible enough to make the right decisions uh, that led to better improvements in the technology, that led to phase outs of the things, that led to legislation, that led to the uh, Montreal Protocols. And effectively, we made that switch without any huge disruption to anything very much. Uh, uh, and and then it went away. It became not salient anymore. And and yet. You know, we're still using deodorant, and we're still we still have aerosol cans, we still have air conditioners, we still have fridges. Um, we also uh, still have a hole. Still, yeah. We are I'm, <laughs> like we also still have a hole in the ozone layer. Always, but but it's but it's stabilized. Like you know, back there in the eighties and nineties, it was getting worse. You know, every every few years it was getting worse. But like now, it's like stabilized. But it and, hasn't and improved. Yeah, I thought I saw it was making a comeback recently. It, we well so so that the the hunger tonga eruption uh which put a lot of water vapor into the atmosphere is probably going to make you know this this uh october and uh that's going to be a, a bad uh ozone hole year uh mm. but but we but the levels of cfcs in the stratosphere uh, have been coming down uh and the level of ozone depleting chemicals has been coming down and so we expect Kind of by 2030, 2035 to actually see a, a, a very clear uh, recovery uh, in that. And and that's a prediction uh, I will be around to see. And so you mm. can hold me to that. So, yeah, we'll, so we'll, it's, we'll that one's not making as much press, which is interesting. But wait, uh, that's really interesting. So how does the volcano affect the ozone? Um, because the uh, the ozone depletion in the South Pole uh, relies on chemical reactions that happen on small particles of ice. Uh, and so they're called polar stratospheric clouds. Uh, they only occur in the very coldest depths of the polar vortex, and and that's mainly in the uh, uh, in Antarctica. Um, uh, but it's when there's more water vapor in the stratosphere, which, I, which as we mentioned before, is a very dry place, uh, and we've increased the water vapor by about 10%, mm. uh, which is quite a lot. Uh, so there will be more polar stratospheric clouds. There will be more ozone depleting reactions, mm. and so there will be more ozone depletion in the um, mm. uh, uh, this 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 will be the spring. So mm. so this is uh, as we as we're coming into the southern hemisphere spring now. And we haven't talked too much about about water actually, and I want to get your thoughts on that because water is a, a pretty decent greenhouse gas too, from what I understand. Oh yeah 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 no water uh, water vapor is about half of the current greenhouse effect. Yeah, yeah. and. And how does that play out in in the Holocene versus in the past? What's our current well, so epoch the, look the, like? Yeah, so the, so the key thing about water vapor is that it has a very short uh, residence time in the atmosphere. So uh, if you if you see how much evaporation there is, how much rainfall there is, an average water molecule stays in the atmosphere for about ten days. Right, which uh, which in terms of the perturbation time for carbon dioxide, which is on the order of thousands to tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands of years, gives you a sense of why they're why they're they're, they're treated a little bit differently, uh, and so. Water vapor really just responds to what the temperatures at the surface are. So when it's warmer on the surface, uh, then it's warmer in the air. The air can hold more water, and it holds about uh, 7% more water for every degree 
warming. So we've already seen like 7% more water vapor in the uh, in the atmosphere uh, since the 19th century and that that has consequences for uh you know rainfall events and uh, and, and and clouds and and, and the like and, and as we said um uh if it gets into the stratosphere then uh, then ozone so this is a sort of positive feedback this is part of the it, well, uh, yeah it, it's an amplifying feedback so as it gets warmer you get more water vapor water vapor is a greenhouse gas so that makes it more warmer still um it, it doesn't like become bigger and bigger it kind of like levels out mm-hmm. um uh but uh but yeah so it's so it's an amplifying feedback on really anything that would change the climate so you would see the same feedback um after a big volcano and the water vapor would go down and, and in fact we we see that we see you would see it after you know if the sun was was bright you would see a, a water vapor feedback. Uh, so uh, the water vapor just, it doesn't really care why anything is changing. It will just change with the temperatures. And so uh, that's why uh, you know we we tend to see it as a uh, you know as a, as a follower rather than a leader. So if, if we if we increase the amount of water vapor in in the lower atmosphere, and we kind of do through irrigation, you know. So if we irrigate. A lot, then uh, it's it's more moist immediately above the irrigation. Uh, but but it doesn't take you know more than a couple of days for that to to rain out and to equilibrate again. So we can have local effects on the water vapor deliberately, but the biggest change in the water vapor is because the temperatures are changing. And doesn't the water vapor play into the cloud cover? Uh, yes, but cloud cover is not just water vapor, right? So, so cloud cover is uh, the the motions of the air, the waves in the air, uh, the interactions with aerosol particles, um, and so. Uh, and if you look at all the different places where different clouds form, uh, it, there's there's a thousand different processes uh, that are involved uh, in 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 those things. It's not it's it's not the case that uh, you know if you increase the water vapor, then everywhere clouds increase. That's not how it works. Mm. We had this really interesting dude, and his name's escaping me now. Nasty will probably remember. Near Shaviv. Near Shaviv, yeah, uh, yeah in yes. Israel, and uh, he had this theory that the uh, that there was cosmic rays that were seeding clouds, essentially, and that this yeah. this transit of the solar system around the galaxy was, in some sense, responsible for these uh, periodicities. Well, I was curious. Yeah, you, you sound like you you're familiar with this work. And very skeptical. Yeah. And very skeptical. I'm I'm a little skeptical. Um. Uh, and I'll give you I'll give you one counterexample. I, I have a hard cut off at five thirty, so I, I'm going to have to go at that. But I'll, I'll give you one example. Um, uh, so uh, again, and it's related to the ice cores. Uh, if you go back about forty thousand years ago, uh, there's what's called the Le Champ or the Le Champs uh, event. Um, and uh, as far as we can tell, what happened was that there was an almost reversal of the magnetic poles. Right, so uh, so the magnetic poles over time have reversed many many times. Uh, the last time they reversed was, uh, I, you know, like eight hundred and some thousand years ago, the Bruns Masayama. Um, but but forty thousand years ago, they almost reversed. Mm. And and so what you can what you can see uh, in the records is that uh, the 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 main magnetic field went to almost nothing. Right. And and for about 10,000 years, it was very small. And then and then it went back to the way it was. Right. So it's like the poles kind of like almost flipped and then and then came back. Mm. Right. And uh, and that's that's a great natural experiment. Right. So you say, OK, well, so there was no there was there was no uh, 
um, bi bipolar magnetic field, right? So you would expect a big increase in the amount of cosmic rays, right, which are shielded both by the sun's magnetic um, uh, field, but also the Earth's magnetic field. And so you'd say, okay, well, where in that particular period uh, is the evidence for any 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 changes in in climate or or anything? Mm. And there's nothing. Well, I guess that assumes people. that you have a continuous stream of cosmic rays. That's more oh, you do, yeah. So, so the cosmic ray background is 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 everywhere all at once. It's not. There's no. You're not. You're not looking at you know individual supernovas and things. You look. You're looking at the whole uh, suite. And we're and we're getting cosmic rays from all directions. That doesn't. That doesn't appear to be. That doesn't appear to be the case. I'm looking at uh, graphs right now, and it cycles. Yeah, I guess that's the the primary foundation of his no, argument. No, no, no. Is the, just the, that the, 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 the cosmic the cosmic rays. Uh, uh, cycle um, on Earth because of the uh, activity of the solar field and activity of the of the geomagnetic field. So there's a there's an 11 year cycle in uh, in cosmic rays hitting the the, the Earth, uh, but that's because of the modulation of solar activity. I guess so, like so the basis of Nier's argument was that we experience more of these cosmic rays when we're in the dense regions of the galactic arms, and as we're traveling around the galaxy, we're spending time in, in more dense regions and so forth. So it assumes some inconsistency. Before this conversation with Nir Shaviv, I had thought that the solar system stayed in one one bright or dark spot in the the Milky Way. Yeah, no, I I I I think we're 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 moving relative to the galactic center. Yeah, which uh, I which I had no idea. And we're at, we're transiting through the arms. And so are the conditions under which we find ourselves change as we transit. Uh, that's it's plausible. I mean, it, that's that's a theory. But on on the short term basis, where we've seen large shifts in um, in cosmic rays, you you don't see any uh, any big effects in climate, as far as we can tell. Fair enough. Yeah, I think it takes two hundred sixty million years or something to go around the galaxy. Yeah, it I takes mean, a long time. I, I don't don't quote me on that. Yeah, no, it's, it's 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 along those lines, and um, uh, and so our uh, our ability to even put together a, a global temperature curve on those time scales is uh, um, is is very uh, uh, is very poor. But but we're working on it. We'll see. Big news, everyone. We have officially announced ticket sales for Demysticon 2024. This is our first scientific conference, and what we're going to be doing is we are bringing together our favorite podcast guests in Austin, Texas, April 7th and 8th of 2024. And we're going to have a slew of incredible speakers. For right now, we don't have everyone confirmed, but of the ones that we do have confirmed, we have our favorite scientist, Pierre-Marie Robitaille, we have ancient mythology scholar John F. White of the Craig and Ford YouTube channel. We have Ogi Ogas, consciousness researcher. We have Steve Keen, economist. And we have many more that are on deck that we will announce very, very soon. So check out the link in the description. And we hope to see you in Austin, Texas of 2024. Yeah, man, I appreciate you coming by. Is there anything that we didn't get to set straight that you wanted to, to say before you, before you have to jet? Because, uh, I mean, oh, I think this is, thank, I definitely, again, want to thank you for coming back. You know, I, I think this is the way to do it. Like, if you've been on our show and you, you feel like we're misrepresenting something, come back. Like, set it straight. I think that's, I want to see more of that in, in the public sphere. I want to see people, I, I want to be a place where people can sort out ideas, not just defend them and disappear right. into the void. So Right. But, like, you know, you know, there's a, there's a lot of... Um, you know, as, as Anastasia said, you know, there's there's a lot of things that are layered on top of science uh, that are 
not science. And uh, and I think that it's useful for people to try and separate those things out um, and to not, uh, you know, I mean, the, the fact that the, the wealthy people travel on planes, uh, that, that doesn't say anything about the radiative properties of carbon dioxide, right? Um, no, but it does say right. something about the way that the future will play out for the regular person versus the rich person. Well, I, I mean, I think that that's always true, right? I mean, uh, the, the rich are not like the rest of us. Right? <laughs> um, uh, so they're not any happier than us, though. That's good to know. Um, but, <laughs> Actually, I remember reading that that study was uh, fundamentally skewed by some percentage of people that are persistently just, they just suck. They hate everything, no matter what their circumstances <laughs> are. And that when you remove yes. those people from the calculation, your happiness increases linearly with income. And there's not, no ceiling. Not unlimitedly. I know a lot of miserable rich people personally. So <laughs> I know I know a lot of miserable Anecdotally. rich people. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'd I like that you know, I've met a few billionaires. They they've never struck me as particularly content. But um mm. what do I know? Well, we'd uh, we'd love to have you back again. This is this is an yeah. endlessly fascinating question for us. I think that it is at the center of uh, just everything in our world right now. And I think that at the end of the day, I, I, I this is a civilization that is worth protecting and worth saving. Think so, and and, and, that, and that's absolutely so. So here we're 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 totally in agreement. I you know I I think that that there are real threats to. Uh, what we're doing and how we're doing it. Uh, and I am trying to help people make decisions that are going to minimize those risks. It's really, it's really a problem avoidance uh, strategy. Um, and, uh, you know, if I can help you out, if you have any other questions, or if something comes up or you, know, you want to, you know, you want to have somebody argue uh, about some of this stuff, uh, you know, I, I'm happy to, uh, uh, I'm happy to be here. You know, I'm not, now, I'm not doing it to sell my book. I'm not doing it to sell my ideas. Uh, I'm just doing it because I really think that, you know, we have learned a lot um, and what we have learned is concerning. And so I like to share that. Right on. Excellent. Well, maybe we'll even get you and Lindsay in the same room at some point down the uh, line. <laughs> <laughs> no, he doesn't, he doesn't think I'm clever enough for him. So it's funny. Hmm. One of my only uh, one of my only like, direct interactions with him was uh, was a paper that we wrote where we criticized uh, kind of an off the cuff statement that he made about how important carbon dioxide was to the carbon to the to the greenhouse effect, and uh, and he was one of the reviewers, and we came up with a number that was like ten times bigger than what he had said, and uh, and he he was he just gave the grumpiest review. Um, and it took like four different submissions to get it published eventually, but it was published and it was right and he was wrong and I don't think he's forgiven me. You always got to have the one grumpy reviewer though. It just, just wouldn't be a <laughs> peer review without it. Well, exactly, exactly. You get used to that. Anyway, All right, sir. for having me back on. Uh, so sorry much. to cut it short, but uh, I, right. yeah. It was, it was good to talk to you. Okay, right. great. Have a great rest of your day. All right, bye, bye everybody.